0: This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello, and welcome to CYBOC. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us today is Robert Carolina. He's a solicitor and is
1: author of the Law and Regulation Knowledge Area. The main goal is to try to present to cybersecurity practitioners a broad framework to understand how law and regulation fits together. The goal is to try to give practitioners a kind of a roadmap to help them find the answer to questions, for that matter, to help them ask better questions.
0: Do you find that that there are common misunderstandings that that folks who are
1: unfamiliar with the details of the law that, that they may have? Within the practitioner community, yes, there, there tends to be some misunderstanding, and partly it's because many security practitioners haven't formally or even informally studied law. So in my class I've been teaching for more than 20 years, I'll have a lot of really bright people who will come in, but their first answer to the question, what is law, will be something relatively mechanistic, like the law is a series of rules that must be obeyed or the law as a series of rules that need to be enforced in certain ways. There's a lot that's a bit more subtle about how to deal with the law. So part of the goal of uh, my class and part of the goal of this document as well is to try to introduce people to the idea that law is a method of influencing society. At the same time, society has its own methods of influencing law.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know, reading through the document, one of the things that really caught my eye right off the bat was Uh, There's this sentence here. It says, the rules of mathematics and physical sciences are both immutable and identical around the world. Laws and regulations are not.
1: Absolutely right. Laws are sort of a creature of social agreement and uh, social need and community need. And the world that we live in, communities are primarily built around geographic territories, ultimately represented by what we call sovereign states.
0: Well, let's go through the the various sections together. I mean, you start off here with an introduction, just some of the basics, uh, kind of a a, a Law 101.
1: Yeah, that's very much the idea because, um, I mean, one of the things that I learned in law school is that any reasonably well-educated person can find the answer to almost any legal question. The question is, how long will it take you to get there? And really, in reflecting on it, I think that one of the things that law school does is it teaches people how to research legal questions and how to interpret very difficult concepts. Can you give us some examples? Well, let's think for a moment about the concept of privacy. Then hmm. uh, this is a topic that's a, it's obviously a very sensitive topic that gets debated a lot among cybersecurity practitioners. People talk about privacy being an important human right. And it is. What people don't always recognize, however, is this idea that privacy as a human right is nonetheless a conditional right. And that's something that I've pointed to where I believe there's relative agreement on a multinational basis. The idea, first of all, that privacy is important and must be adhered to as a human right— But equally, I think it's accurate to say that every sovereign state in the world and most of the communities that they represent agree with the idea that there are certain times, under certain conditions, having followed certain procedures, where the privacy right has to take second place to the needs of the community. Now, Hmm. what I've just outlined is where all the problems come up, where there's lack of agreement is where are those exceptions Uh, What are those conditions and what process do we need to follow in order to redress that? And that's where agreement breaks down.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's uh, talk about uh, the the second section here, which is about jurisdiction. It's particularly interesting in cyberspace because of the the sort of borderless uh, nature of online communications. Really? Who told you that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> i'm 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 a quick study uh, rob I, I have to tell you <laughs> I, I look at I, I look at the internet and i see something that uh, that crosses a lot of borders but it's certainly anything but borderless i mean the, the sovereign state borders huh. territorial borders that we have today still drive an enormous amount of interaction between societies and the internet. It certainly constrains and hedges around enforcement jurisdiction. The ability of a state to project police power is, um, is very much constrained by the concept of territoriality. And when we talk about what laws or what rules are we subject to when we use the internet, invariably, you have to get down to a question of where are people in the real world when a given activity takes place. Where am I when I upload something? Where is somebody else when they download something? Uh, you know, the, things like the location of the server may or may not be the most important thing in assessing whose law applies to a given circumstance. Um, but, you know, it very much is dependent on the area of law in terms of how you make those calculations.
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, of those cases we've heard of where, uh, for example, some uh, some folks who are spreading uh, malware who are in Russia will often have their malware checked to see if the, the person they're potentially infecting has a Russian keyboard so as to not infect, uh, you know, a,
1: a countryman. Well, I mean, that's obviously quite a strong example, but it is um, symptomatic of a lot of activity. There are many people, I mean, not just threat actors, but I guess we could call them legitimate actors or non-threat actors who will limit their own activities in an effort to reduce the risk that they will become subject to an unfavorable set of laws. The simplest example I can think of that probably a lot of your listeners will be familiar with is the change in procedures caused by the advent of GDPR. Mm -hmm. The number one thing as an American living in London that I noticed after the advent of GDPR was that suddenly a large number of free online news sources emanating from the U.S. were suddenly no longer available. They all had walls or notices that came up that said, we're very sorry, our service is not currently available in the European Union. Or alternatively, you would just get, you know, a sort of like site not found or something much less helpful. But ultimately, a lot of those changes were simply people thinking, I don't know if my business is prepared to comply with GDPR, so what do we do? We exit the market. How do we do that? We filter our own content so that people in that market can't see it. Hmm.
0: And yet, I mean, uh, to extend that, I mean, you, people can uh, can put in place workarounds, You know, use, use a VPN or something like that to make it appear that they're coming from a different place, um, which is something
1: that wouldn't be so easy to do in the physical world. Well, and in the physical world, you can uh, stash a bunch of contraband in your socks as you go through an airport. Um, hmm. Smuggling is a reality. Border enforcement is never perfect. Right, right. No, it's interesting. I guess I'm well, trying I mean, to— Well, let me, let me take that a step further. Yeah. I mean, if we then take that idea back into the virtual world, yeah, people can use VPNs. And whenever I talk to network engineers and I talk about things like um, people attempting to impose borders on Internet infrastructure, I say, oh, yeah, well, I, I could use a VPN. Yeah, I know you could. Um, well, you know, don't you know, some of these services, if they start to see uh, a lot of traffic breaking out of what they think is a VPN service, they'll start to block that too. I mean, you see an escalating arms race between people who are trying to neatly uh, containerize or geographically uh, restrict their content. Once they start seeing a significant amount of that content, though those restrictions being circumvented, they take anti-circumvention measures. Now, you know, our friends in the engineering community will say, but I know a way around that. You know, I'll use, the, I'll use the onion router. Okay, we'll try that. And then someone else is trying a countermeasure. So we keep, for as long as I've been playing in this space, I've watched this sort of uh, step-counter-step-measure-countermeasure thing going on in terms of uh, attempting to uh, reorder content distribution in line with geographic territory.
0: Let's move on and discuss uh, the issues of privacy. Um, I think this is particularly interesting because I think there's a lot of um, confusion. It's probably not the the precise word, but people often uh, confuse privacy with security, and they're not the same thing.
1: No, they're not. It's not even the same as data protection, which we'll come on to in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the, the concept of what privacy is has really evolved kind of slowly over the course of the last 120 years. I mean, you know, 120, 130 years ago, people were writing about privacy in the the sense of, I don't want anyone to be able to take my picture, you know, to have a verisimilitude of my likeness that seems too terribly intrusive. Um, Whereas today, you know, a lot of places where practitioners live, if you're out in public, well, of course, you're going to have your picture taken. Although in some places, you find some European countries, for example where that rule, there's still a vestige of that concept of privacy. So when you get to something like privacy, this is a great example of where the law becomes very measured and, and interpreted very differently depending on the values of the society you're working with. You know, the French have their own rules of privacy, which aren't the same as the English, which are not the same as people in New York or California.
0: Well, let's move on to data protection.
1: Can you contrast that against privacy? Yeah, happy to. I think the one of the biggest misunderstandings about data protection is that people just focus on the privacy angle. And privacy yeah. is, is kind of one smaller part of data protection. The best explanation I've ever heard of data protection law is that it's an effort to try to vest some degree of control into the hands of a living person, a person we call the data subject, to try to give that person some degree of autonomy or agency, shall we say, over how they are being analyzed or about how information related to them is used. And that's not just to do with privacy. So here we find in data protection a lot of concepts about uh, people being aware of how their data is being used, and consent is kind of a small part of that, but I think a, uh, a slightly overfocused focused on uh, issue in that context. So so, yeah, I mean, if, if you want to get really philosophical here, and maybe you don't, but if you do, um, <laughs> go on. I, I, think that, I think that data protection is, if anything, a reaction to the advent of the modern nation state and the modern multinational enterprise. Because if you look at sort of like the flow of history through the mid to late 19th century, the coming together of the large nation states that we see today, what made those states possible was a strong centralized ability to process and make use of personal data. If you see a large state growing, how do you maintain a large state? Well, we need a list of people. Well, what do you do with that list? Have they paid their taxes? Did they pay tax when they changed property? Have they served in the military? Do we have to conscript them? Um, You know, so you start getting a lot more formality in terms of like how data is being collected. And the use of data sets is a method of projecting state power. Well, as we turn into the middle of the 20th century, obviously some absolutely horrible things happen that were facilitated mm-hmm. with data processing. There have been some interesting books written about that as well. And as we come out of World War II, we start to find a, a certain lack of confidence or a certain uncomfortableness with just how easy it is to abuse the processing of personal data. And so we see growing out of that a desire to say, you know, look, we want to create a new type of human right the ability for people to have some influence over how what people know about them is used because we recognize there's a danger in that. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, I think, um, you know, personally for a lot of folks, myself included, um, I had this notion when, at the dawn of the time of the internet, and people were starting to say, well, this will be wonderful because advertising will be targeted, and so you won't see ads for things that you aren't interested in, and so it won't waste your time, and this will be this will be a great thing for everyone. Advertisers won't spend money putting their messages in front of people who aren't interested in their products. And yet we find ourselves here today where... Uh, we quite often find ourselves creeped out by the degree to which advertisers can target us and
1: put things in front of us when we least expect it. Well, yeah, that is that is an advent, uh, or that is something that happens. Although I would point out that there were some slightly creepy things that used to happen even before the internet, yeah. uh, which you find out if you uh, you know if you have a chance to study people who um, make use of various uh, you know cookie tracking implements and things like that. People things that are People who are tracking what users do. And I remember saying to somebody years ago, I said, "This is that's slightly creepy because it's like someone's following you around a store." And the guy said, "Well, actually, that was my first job in retail. I used to follow people around the store and chart very carefully where did they how, what did their progression look like, and we studied those records very carefully because that's how we that's how we designed uh, retail setups." And I thought, "I never knew that." He said, "Well, you know, it's <laughs> it's it, it, it's a service that's been offered for a long time, but but here's the difference." We had no idea who we were tracking. We could just say, "Well, it's a, a, a white male in his fifties, we think." But other than that, we don't have any other record. What makes the internet uh, significantly different, and what makes and the reason data protection is such an interesting advent to it, is that the action of tracking an end user almost inevitably leads to something which makes it possible to identify that end user. And that's an interesting little bridge because I I, I could not get away with this, out of this thing without saying something about, I wrote kind of extensively about this confusion between do we mean personal data or do we mean PII? Because I find that there's a lot of practitioner confusion on that. So I decided to dig into that a bit. Well, uh, explain it to us. What uh, what do we need to know there? Oh, sure. I mean, PII is a term as near as I can tell that was invented in the U.S., for various purposes and the earliest that i've seen it used i mean i'm sure that a scholar in the u.s could correct me but the earliest that i've seen it used were in late 1980s federal statutes that were adopted specifically to limit how uh, you know the old video rental stores would use video rental records and the language chosen by congress or the language adopted by congress was we are regulating how personally identifying information is being used now Completely separately and unrelated in Europe, we ought, in the late 1980s, we already had a couple of decades of familiarity with the concept of personal data, which was going down its own path. Now, we roll the clock a bit forward and we say, well, that's fine, but here we are in the 21st century. What's the difference between the two of them? Well, it depends on who you ask. It depends on what purpose you have. When you're looking at data protection, the definition of personal data is incredibly wide almost anything you can imagine could conceptually be personal data. Because the test is this. It is whether or not you see or you can determine who is identified in this data set, or if a living person can be identified by you or anybody else on the face of the earth. So that suggests that if you have pseudonymous data or any data set that can be de-anonymized then it's still personal data for regulatory purposes. Whereas you come back to the American focus, and if you look at the American federal statutes, you see that there have been a couple of courts who've looked back into these 1980s, 1990s cases, and they're trying to figure out, well, how broadly was Congress intending to legislate here? And you have judges saying, well, personal data, I know it when I see it, or personally identifying information, (laughs) I know it when I see it. And this just isn't it. It's like a list of IP addresses. What's that? It's not people. Now, you go back to Europe, and they say, well, of course an IP address can be personal data, because there are many circumstances where an IP number can be uniquely linked to a single living individual. Now, it's not that you, the database owner, can do that, but maybe the telecommunications company can. So, and then you, get the, then you get something even worse, which is in the middle of this, you have very well-intentioned people in the technical standards setting arena who adopted a couple of standards as a NIST standard and an ISO standard where they both attempt to identify or define personally identifiable information. Their definition adheres more closely to the European definition than to the old 1980s U.S. Congress definition. What does all this mean? What it means is that when you get practitioners in a room, in a meeting with a bunch of people in their business and everyone's going around the table and saying, do we have a compliance issue here? Oh, I don't know. Do we have any PII? I don't see any PII. Do you see any PII? Well, I thought that was PII. I don't see any names in there. Are there names in there? Uh, maybe it's not PII. You know, I'll bet it's not PII. You know what? Why don't we all just convince ourselves that this is nothing to worry about? Okay, next subject. <laughs>
0: wow. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, with the time that we
0: have left here, and and I want to point out to our listeners that um, this is a a really a deep document and it covers a lot of ground here, things from uh, the different types of cybercrime, torts, uh, regulatory matters, and and so on. Um, Let's move on, though, with the time we have left and, and talk a little bit about how this affects things internationally. There's a whole section here on public international law um, and, and to your point that you just made, I mean, there are different parts of the world interpret these things differently. And yet, there's um, that old saying that how the world keeps getting smaller. Um, I can't help wonder, are, are we headed towards or how do we reach agreements? How do, how do we translate all these different things in this, in this world where things are transferring so quickly globally?
1: The answer is we might not. Hmm. I mean, there have been a lot of good efforts for more than a century to harmonize various types of domestic law. Some of those are successful. Some of those are failures. They tend to be the most successful when you have unity of interest between competing states. So there is some unity of interest and in some common factors that you'll find in commercial law, for example. It's, it's not that difficult to move from one system of commercial interaction to another where it's very difficult to get harmonization of law, would be with very culturally sensitive issues, like, let's say, computer crime. More specifically, uh, in that case, I'd be talking about the content of message transmission. You're just not going to get widespread agreement among different sovereign states, among different communities in the world, about how to define what is or is not criminal transmissible messages. Because you start to brush up against theories of uh, free speech. You get into tension there. Now, in terms of public international law, there's also not even complete agreement on what that means at the moment. There are public international legal principles, and public international law, by the way, is just the area of law that regulates how states deal with each other. Hmm. I think the simplest way to think of public international law is it's that group of rules that tells us not to be bad to each other. tell states to stay out of each other's way. So once again, the territoriality principle comes straight to the front. And international law just says there's some things that that one sovereign state should not do to another sovereign state. Well, what if they do? Well, there's no world police to go enforce this. Okay, so each state ends up very often just enforcing the rules themselves. Well, someone has violated my rights, so I'm going to take countermeasures. Now, the, the most significant work in that space to date in cyber operations is obviously the Talon Manual 2.0. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time trying to help practitioners understand how to get to grips with that document. And there's a bunch of other fascinating articles that, um, that, that point out some difficulties that I've also cited. But that's just the question of how do states moderate their behavior against one another Then a middle point in between those two is what we call private international law. And that's sort of dotted around different sections of this chapter. And that's the area of law that says, well, if we have people who live or operate or work from two states, and they're in some sort of relationship, voluntary or involuntary relationship with each other, how do we figure out which state's laws will be used to resolve some problem between them? And there, the rules kind of depend upon which area of law we're looking about. You know, are we talking about a voluntary relationship between uh, business to business? Are we talking about an involuntary relationship between a person who's negligent and a victim? Are we talking about uh, strict liability for defective Internet of Things-style product that causes harm or physical injury to somebody someplace else? So each of those has a slightly different method of resolution. Now, that area of law is not new, It's actually pretty old. Hmm. What makes it much more significant today, we're back to the Internet, and that is the Internet has thrown more people into various types of communication and relationship with each other across borders than anything else ever has.
0: It's interesting to me because I I, I keep thinking about – this notion that one of the key differences when it comes to things online are its velocity and scale. In other words, um, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, to not expect privacy when out in a public place. And and that's, you know, that's been a, a, an understanding for a long time. But um, when we, when it comes to the point where we're living in sort of this panopticon, where there's surveillance everywhere and the ability to do facial recognition and, Um, the degree to which things can be done in a new way that uh, is faster and um, more complete than it was in the past, um, I think that presents us with interesting dilemmas as to these things that we've thought for a long time, do they need to be rethought uh, when faced with this notion of velocity and, and scale?
1: Well, indeed. And in the specific case of privacy, there are some people who believe that part of this gets resolved simply because people in societies will begin to reset their expectations. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you're familiar with the phrase reasonable expectation of privacy. It's widely used, especially by American lawyers, but it's a concept that's widely known. And Mm -hmm. I would say that it's, it's one way of measuring how much privacy should you expect. Well, that expectation can change over time. It's like a lot of social standards. It can change over time. It becomes modified. And there are some people who believe, especially that, you know, the next generation of Internet users have probably reduced their – have a reduced expectation of privacy. Or they may well have set their standards lower than their grandparents or great-grandparents would have. Now, if that's the case, then they won't perceive a violation of privacy because, well, they didn't expect it anyway.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and, and I suppose points to the the, to the notion uh, that uh, this is all evolving. You know, it changes as, as social norms change, as, as societies change, people's expectations change. Uh, so too, uh,
1: the law changes along with it. Well, I- indeed, I mean, there are some people who like to say that the law is always behind technology, mm-hmm. and I te- I disagree with that strongly. Hmm. I think that the law keeps pace with technology reasonably well. What doesn't keep pace with technology are lawyers. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, it's the the, the the framework. I mean, the the, the fun thing about writing this uh, this knowledge area is that I'm talking about sort of frameworks of understanding or frameworks of, of law, some of which are centuries old. You know, particularly if we look at something like uh, the law of negligence, this concept yeah. of owing a duty of care and acting acting reasonably. Those ideas haven't really changed fundamentally in a long time, so the framework is static. But how they're interpreted is dynamic. The concept of what is reasonable changes as the environment changes. So the Internet is a change to the environment. And as we get used to this new environment, we start to learn new things. We start to learn, for example, how our actions might harm somebody else. Therefore, as we start to learn that, that suggests a duty of care should apply. Is it because we just passed the new Duty of Care Act 1995? No, no, it's a very old principle. We're just applying it into a new environment. Well, what does that new environment look like? That's your problem. Hmm. So whenever you have lawyers or worse judges who don't get to grips with or understand the new environment, they very often, they might understand the law particularly well, but they don't necessarily understand the environment in which they're trying to apply it. Now, I'll tell you something where we do need some breakthroughs. And we need them soon. And that's in the field of practitioner ethics. Hmm. And so, well, I was asked to write about this and I, I was very tempted to, you know, just drop in one page that says, you know, yeah, we, we really should work on this. But I thought that was uh, not really a good approach to, to take. There's a very strong case for codes of practice, codes of ethics for cybersecurity practitioners. I mean, why is that? Well, let's look at the reasons. Number one, cybersecurity practitioners are placed in positions of trust. Number two, they work off a special skill set which is not widely known. Number three, a lot of what they do is done behind closed doors. It's outside the sort of like the full light of public scrutiny. Now you put those things together and we come up with a really difficult problem. And that is, that gives the cybersecurity practitioner If they choose to use it, which I hope many of them don't, if they choose to use it, it gives them the potential of having um, asymmetric power over their client. If you have a security practitioner working inside a business with privileged root access to all sorts of sensitive systems and, uh, and the client doesn't necessarily know what they're doing, in the event of a disagreement between employee and employer, between practitioner and client, um, that's an uncomfortable position for a client to be in. So, what do we use to moderate that behavior? How do we guide people through that process? And then finally, what cybersecurity practitioners do? There's a real potential to hurt people out in the public. You know, whether you're penetration testing uh, or doing what I would describe as legitimate research, if you don't carefully constrain your actions. It's, it's not that difficult to do something which could end up harming either your own client or members of the public or people you've never met. Now, that's a classic formulation for a profession or a group of practitioners that should have and should adopt strong codes of conduct. In my search for these, I found very few that I thought really worked. Because for one of these codes to work, you need buy-in. You need genuine engagement, and to get genuine engagement, you need to define the community who is engaging. So I write about two of those codes uh, in Cyblock, which one of them is the uh, the ACM code and the other is uh, the Crest code, which was originally adopted in the context of pen testing. The first is a code built around a set of skills. The second is a code that I would argue is built around a specific business process that has a particularly high risk. And I, th- I hope that what we will see is the emergence of more codes of conduct that have that characteristic of stickiness that people are really adhering to. Now, don't get me wrong. Let me make something super clear. The cybersecurity practitioners that I've had the privilege to meet and work with over the course of the past 30 years, the vast, vast majority of them are wonderfully brilliant, upstanding members of society. And, you know, I'd I'd put my life in their hands if I had to. I find that sometimes, though, those people genuinely struggle to understand what is the right thing to do in a particularly difficult situation. And what makes me feel bad for someone like that is they don't really have a super organized and well-developed set of principles that they've been taught about that they can fall back on. A lot of people are having to make decisions in the dark, and that's a very, very uncomfortable place to be.
0: Do you think the profession needs
1: something along the lines of of what we expect from folks who work in public health, for example? I think that what I'm describing as the community of cybersecurity practitioners are on the cusp of and have the potential to define a profession. I'm not 100% convinced that we are there yet, but certainly there's a lot of goodwill. Now, in terms of what that profession looks like, will it look like uh, doctors dealing with clients? Will it look like lawyers? Will it look like accountants? Will it look like plumbers or electricians? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I do think, though, that some of the characteristics that come out will and should inform the debate. For example, I think a cybersecurity practitioner is someone who needs to be Who needs to carry the trust of their client almost unconditionally? And that suggests to me, you know. But then again, I'm I'm a lawyer. I would say this, wouldn't I? that, That suggests to me that you know, if if a cybersecurity practitioner is working for a client, then the client should have a very deep expectation that what they tell the practitioner remains confidential, that it remains privileged from disclosure in the same way it would if you were talking to a doctor or talking to a lawyer. That's, reason, that's the reason those professions have those privileges in many societies around the mm-hmm. world. Um, I think that many security practitioners become very uncomfortable in those discussions, particularly those who have worked in public service, uh, because in their role as public servants, they've thought of society as their client, rightly so. Well, when they move into the private sector, the question becomes, well, how do you reset your expectations in terms of how you engage uh, with an end user? And of course, there, there will be times where the needs of society will outweigh that professional relationship. It happens in the doctor-patient relationship sometimes. It happens in, rarely, but it sometimes happens in the lawyer-client relationship. Um, and I'm sure that we'll be able to identify circumstances where it should happen in this relationship as well. Part of the ultimately... Ultimately, a big part of this depends on what is this profession we're trying to define. And I think that there's a lot of that still up for debate.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, Let's bring it home together. Uh, The the final section, uh, the concluding section, talks about legal risk management. Um, Can you take us through what, what we're talking about here when it comes to managing risks?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, this is almost a a callback to an earlier section. Uh, In an early section of the chapter, I talk about um, trying to assess legal risk. And when I talk about assessing legal risk, it's a retrospective, an after-the-fact assessment. So, you know, I'm Bob. I get a letter before action from Alice. Alice is threatening to sue me. Well, in, in assessing my risk, I look back over what's happened, what I know about, what What would Alice have to prove if she took me to court? Do I have affirmative defenses? What would I have to pay in terms of a fine or or damages? Is she really going to take me to court? All that kind of stuff. Well, with legal risk management, you have to turn that and face forward, face the future. So now it's a question of how do I plan, um, you know, how do I plan my future activities? Well, there's a series of like very short things that I've suggested. First of all, Nobody dealing with the internet regularly is going to be able to even learn all the laws that apply to them necessarily. So you have to really focus in on what are your areas of most significant risk. And that's one of the reasons why this particular chapter is so broad because practitioners do such a wide variety of things as security practitioners. I want people to be able to identify, well, which of these many areas of law is most important to me? And when you do, the next question is, well, which of the countries or states, shall we say, that I might be engaged with are the biggest threat to me? How do I investigate those? The sort of due diligence principle. There's also a principle about anyone who deals with uh, processes or products that might threaten human life. Those people have to investigate very, very carefully any laws or regulations about how to keep products safe, how to keep people safe from things that go terribly wrong. Well, after that, there's just a whole series of things that i've I've written uh, in this chapter in, in this section, I should say, in this final section on risk management that's that's kind of I was just trying to look inside my own head. As a lawyer, what am I thinking about when I'm advising a client prospectively who's moving into a business, and how do you balance all these things out against one another? I think I listed about thirteen or fourteen factors to look at. Um, and ultimately, I hope that practitioners will realize that dealing with law and regulation is not completely different from dealing with any other risk vector or threat actor. It's a series of potential risks that you might face, and there are some practical things you can do to limit that risk, and you have to figure out how to draw that balance. And the idea of taking the mechanistic approach of well, just tell me all the rules now. Comply with them. I don't know of anybody who who does anything that way in law, because there's just it, it's too large a field. There's too many unknowns.
0: Our thanks to Robert Carolina for joining us. You can check out the entire law and regulation knowledge area publication on the Cybok website, Cybok.org. To learn more about the Cybok project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Program and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denesis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok Podcast is produced by the CyberWire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iban, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.